to Crimes from the East. I'm host Pia, and with me is Alex. Hello, Alex. Good day, mate. Wait a second. <laughs> Wait a second. Who is this? Sometimes I can do an Australian accent from down under in Australia. Why are we talking about Australia, Alex? Please explain. We have apparently a, a solid listener base in Australia. Yes. So I just wanted to say hello to all of our mates down under. Thank you. Um, I'll try. Um, what do they say? A dingo ate my baby. No, 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 oh, no. Oh. That was such a sad case, Alex. That was such a sad case. Oh, yeah, I remember. Uh, Marmite. Marmite. Mm. Wait, that's is that Australian? You know what? I, I went to Australia when I was a kid. And what I remember above all else was falafel. They had amazing falafel down there. Picture for Australia in Wikipedia is probably falafel, I guess. Yeah, everyone knows you go to Australia for your falafel. Oh, this is going to be embarrassing. I'm definitely not going to listen to this episode or I'm going to have to skip the intro if you keep any of my very, very shameful attempts at an Australian accent. <laughs> I'll keep some of it. I feel like I could do a New Zealand accent not bad when, I, when I've like listened to it a bit and I mimic it. It's not the worst. To be honest, I don't know what a New Zealand accent is. Like, I'd probably mistake it for something else. It's like a fancy Australian accent. Oh. I used to work with this Kiwi lady. She had a little baby. He was the cutest thing ever. And she meant this as like, he's such a little stinker, but she used to call him a rat bag. And I just loved that. I love this. Rat bag. He's a little rat bag. <laughs> I definitely have a little rat bag at home. <laughs> I hope she never hears this when she grows up. You sound like you're from Texas. Rat bag. <laughs> I've got a rat bag. I've got a rat bag. Um, yeah, so we don't know anything about Australia. We're so sorry about that. Why don't you educate us? Amazing listeners. Down under. Yeah. The only thing I know is that there's like a little war of the mites, the Vegemite and Marmite wars. Oh, yeah. Let me look it up. Let me look it up. I don't want to get this wrong. So they're yeah. always like fighting about which one's the better one. So Vegemite is the Australian. Yeah. Australian one. Okay. And Marmite is the British one. Yeah. I think I have Marmite at home. So I'm so sorry. Are you a fan? I love it. I love it. It is so salty. Mm -hmm. And it's got that umami goodness. So I like putting it in roasts and curries and stuff like that. Okay, so you cook with it. Sometimes. Mostly I just put it on toast with butter. Yeah. My salt hit for the mm. morning, you know, raise my blood pressure up a little bit to wake me up. Ooh, another good thing from Australia, Tim Tams. I haven't had those. They're cookies and they're amazing. Oh, haven't eaten those ever. I think there's like marshmallow in the middle of them <gasps> and they're covered in chocolate. I don't know. I forget exactly what's happening, but they're amazing. They're addictive. That sounds really good. That's exactly my kind of thing. Chocolate. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Got me a chocolate. Speaking of chocolate, let's talk about some brown people <laughs> from India. There's your segue. <laughs> we did it. We got there. <laughs> you get the first... Uh... Crimes from the East Segway Awards. Da, 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 da. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. 
Well, first of all, I want to say thank you to all of our listeners, new and old OG listeners who are here from like episode one and everyone that's joined in this week. Thank you so much for listening, especially after our last episode, Disha. It seems like it's it's been well received and we're so grateful. Thank you so much. It was a very hard case. Thank you. I post on Reddit after every, every episode. There are lots of comments there, and a lot of people were very happy those guys were dead and shot. Mm. And I totally understand that because personally, like we expressed in the Hercules episode, in our heads, we want them dead. We're like, we're going to end you. But in a civil society, you cannot let the wheels of justice be usurped by extrajudicial killings because you never know when it'll stop and when it's misused. Yep. And... I guess that's it. That's all I wanted to say. Awesome. Thanks to everyone who listened and supported. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. After that really hard episode last week, I wanted to jump into something that was, a well, you know, all murder is hard and bad. And yes, it's difficult to talk about. But this one is so old. It's way back. So that kind of gives us a little buffer because you feel more deeply about something that's happened recently. You can relate to it. It's happened in an environment you can uh imagine and visualize but when something's happened like 50 years ago you're like eh sure someone died but we can look at it from a slightly detached yeah perspective yeah, yeah, yeah and so that's what today's case is going to feel like it's flashback time today rewind that's my rewind sound we rewind and take a look at a vintage case that was quite the sensational public extravaganza in a time where trial by media was unheard of. Today, that's how most cases play out for the few years before the verdicts come out. Websites, blogs, and whatnot are full of discussions about each case, but back then, that was not the norm. There were very few avenues of discussion anyway. What did you have? Newspapers? Mm-hmm. That's pretty much all you had. Or flyers. Letters. <laughs> Letters, yes. People wrote furious letters to like a group of people. That was that was their blog medium. But we'll see that in today's case, how it kind of took roots in India. We are going to talk about the Kavas Nanavati case. Wait, is his full name Kavas Navas Nanavati? Why am I so bad at this? Okay, Kavas Nanavati. We are going to talk about the Kavas Nanavati case. And the murder of Prem Ahuja. So that's the victim's name, Prem Ahuja. Now this takes place in Mumbai or Bombay as it was known back in 1959. And that's how I'm going to call it throughout the episode. That's what I like to do. So, woo, that's a long, long time ago. 1959. When was it? 1959. Our parents were but we, but we little tykes. Very, very we. <laughs> Yes, our parents were probably infants at that point. Mm -hmm. India had just become a republic a mere 12 years ago in 1947. So we were fresh out uh, from under the grasp or the claws of the colonial white devils. Fresh out of the democracy oven. Nice little chapati of democracy. (laughs) Yeah, nice and puffed up. (laughs) So... It was a budding nation, still planting seeds for growth and slowly reestablishing its place and identity in the world. 1959 was a happening year. 
Now, a lot was going on in the world at that time. And I'm going to tell you a couple of tidbits from mm. some of the other major countries. Abel and Baker were two super cute monkeys that were launched off into space no! by the American army <laughs> no! in 1959. Don't worry. After a 15-minute ride on a rocket, the two are apparently recovered safely from an ocean near Puerto Rico. I don't believe it. I don't believe it either. <laughs> <laughs> they said they found him and they were safe. I want to believe it now, actually. You know what? Imagine. They were safe, Alex. They yeah. were safe and they're alive today. They're still alive. <laughs> they're in an old monkey home and they're, you know, regaling tales about that 15-minute trip around our atmosphere, <laughs> which was probably clean back then. Oh, yeah. Great visibility. Hmm. The first three-point car seat belt was released by Volvo in Switzerland. Oh. In 1959, the construction of the Sydney Opera House officially began. Oh. What an iconic marvel mm -hmm. of modern architecture. I dream of seeing a live performance there someday. That would be so cool. The plane ride is so long. It's yeah. like 24 hours or something, but someday I'll make it happen. Let's go. And we can meet our Australian fans. That's like 10 years from now when we go on tour, when we're hot shot. We'll toast with some uh, Vegemite. <laughs> yeah, some Tim Tams. Tim Tams, yeah. So back in India in 1959, Bajaj Auto got its license to churn out two and three wheeler scooters. And they later licensed Vespa scooters in India. So we had a bunch of Vespas oh, puttering about. This was a fancy time. And every middle class family owned a Vespa and sat on it together. Like all four, five, six members of the family would be mm -hmm. on the bike together at one time. We've done this. Any other Daisy listeners who, you know, lived through that era have done this. The clown car. Yeah, I definitely recall visiting you when I was little, and just all of our legs hanging off. Off of one bike. Like the sides, we look like a f weird human centipede. Even today, you'll see it in India, and you know, most of Asia, and even Africa, I've seen tons of videos where people do that. You know, necessity. It's necessity out of necessity. Yeah. <laughs> Safety, who cares? You can die any, any day anyway, so. YOLO. A sad fact that I learned about Bajaj. They have 10,000 employees, out of which only 51 are women. So, boo, Bajaj? Yeah. yeah. Boo? That's pretty sad in 2021. Come on. Yeah. Hire some women. In 1959, the 14th Dalai Lama was exiled from his home in Tibet. Ooh. And he fled to India along with 80,000 Tibetans who still call India their second home. <laughs> I love the way you say Tibet and Tibetans. 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 Oh, Tibetans. Tibetans. It's like the episode of pronunciation. See, uh, apart from native speakers of the language, everyone else is probably saying it totally wrong. So that's, yeah. it's fine. Don't think about it too much. <laughs> so Tibetans in exile in India have been able to preserve their culture and practice their religion peacefully. Mm -hmm. I hope someday they're able to return home. And, yeah, free you Tibet. Know, but, um, huge circle back to our case for today. So we are in Bombay in 1959. All yes. of this stuff is happening all over the world. And um, Bombay is even then a happening and hot city with all the glitz and glam of Bollywood, as well as the growing industries 
that were cementing its place as the economic and financial Pub? part of the country. Yeah. Yeah. So our case takes place in April. On April 27, 1959, naval commander Kavas Manikshaw Nanavati shot and killed Prem Ahuja, a man with whom his wife had admitted to having an affair. Ah, okay. So Prem is not the wife. No, Prem is the bi-friend. Ooh, the bi-friend. The bi-friend, yeah. Kavas Nanavati was from the Parsi community. Parsis are a Zoroastrian group of people who fled persecution in Persia or Iran and settled in Western India Mm -hmm. nearly a thousand years ago. And they are a close-knit community who rarely marry outside of their ethno-religious group. Yeah. Having a small community like that has led to the slow decline of their population in modern times. From the last census, I think there were only 60,000 left in India. I feel like I am just dumb and never knew this, but Freddie Prince was a Farsi. Parsi. Freddie Mercury, not Freddie Prince. Can I just say that all over again so I know it sounds so stupid? Yeah. Freddie Mercury, it turns out, to people who are uneducated like myself, was originally a Farsi. That's right. Is it Farsi or Parsi? Why can't I get this? So Farsi is what the language is called. That's the language. It means from Persia. Okay. I just like never realized that he was not just a white British dude. But once I saw it, I couldn't unsee it. I'm like, duh, (laughs) look at that mustache. Only... An Indian man could have a mustache like this. Iranis are close to us in our DNA. Yeah. yeah. Homogeneity or whatever it is. Um, mm-hmm. Haplogroups and whatnot. And that's my opinion. I'm not a scientist. I don't know. But from what I've read, and I love reading about these things. And his name was Farouk Balsara. Farouk. Farouk Balsara. And his family did live in Bombay. So, yes, he was nice. from the Parsi community in Bombay that we are going to talk about today. So, Parsis have mostly been a well-educated group who were well-versed in English, especially during the colonial era. So, they had a blast. Mm -hmm. They spoke English and they kind of did probably feel like they were different from the native population at that time. And they Mm -hmm. held several favorable positions in colonial India. There are several highly successful Parsi conglomerates in India even today, the most notable of which is the $100 billion revenue worth Tata Group or Tata Group. Mm -hmm. And generally, Parsis are seen as straight arrows. They're seen as earnest, honest, and upright people who don't cheat or lie. That's the perception of Parsis in India. The reputation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I just want to lay all of this groundwork to... Help us understand how the case kind of evolves or devolves. Yeah, okay. So there was back then, and even today, a healthy community of Parsis in Bombay. Both affluent Parsis and common folk as well. But generally, they did well. Yeah. Kavas Nanawati was a handsome, six feet tall, fair man who certainly caught everyone's attention in every social setting. He hailed from a wealthy Parsi family in Bombay. He was smart, well-educated, and by all means, he was poised for greatness in Bombay society. Remember, these are the nascent beginnings. 
of Bombay, just out of the British rule. So it's a small community. Everyone kind of knows everyone. And the community is even smaller if you look at the well-educated, well-placed professionals in the city. Today, there's millions and millions and millions of them. But back then, there were probably only thousands. Yeah. Okay. Following in the entrepreneurial spirit was probably not the path for Kavas. And so he joined the Indian Navy as a young adult. A noble and prestigious, certainly flashy gig back in the day. Mm-hmm. I mean, come on. Have you seen Navy officers in their finery? I, yeah. I may be biased, of course, because my father was a naval officer. But you get it, right? Sharp, sharp, great sunglasses. So my dad used to polish his shoes every single night. White shoes. <sighs> and it's India. So they don't stay white more than like three minutes once you step outside your home. Damn. So what a tour. What a task. Ugh, white in India. But it looked really nice. It looked really <laughs> cool. It still does. I think it's the best uniform like uh, out of all the defense forces. Mm-hmm. I'm biased, of course. But the naval uniform is the hottest. <laughs> so post-Indian independence, the Royal Indian Navy, which was the British version of it, was taken back from the clutches of the colonial white devils. <laughs> Your favorite term. <laughs> I will never let it go. So the Royal Indian Navy was split between India and Pakistan. Physical material and officers were split between the two countries. So they gave some to Pakistan and some to India. The newly formed Indian Navy was now starting fresh. They didn't have officers because... For the nearly 200 years before, the Royal Indian Navy only had British officers in positions of high rank. So weird. I'm not surprised. Yeah, it makes sense. But it's just like, how are you even going to call it an Indian Navy? It's just a bunch of... Goras. (sighs) Yeah. Yeah. Indians were kept at lower ranks, you know, doing all the hard work. I can't believe how long it was. Yeah. Hundreds, hundreds of years. So till around 1955, all Indian officers received training in England, which I find, again, weird. We kicked you out, but we still come to you for help, and they're okay Mm -hmm. with it. Mm -hmm. Kavas joined in the late 1940s, and he too was sent off to train at the Royal Naval College in Portsmouth, England. The dashing young man of 24 met a young teenage Sylvia King in Portsmouth. And they fell in love. Whirlwind romance. I mean, I can imagine it. He must have been some dashing naval officer and met her in some some of their social clubs back there. He fell in love. They were soon married and they moved back to Bombay after Kavas completed his training there. In quick succession, Sylvia and Kavas had three children settled well into the high-flying naval life in Bombay. Naval life is pretty cool because you get postings in awesome locations, like all by the ocean near beaches and palm trees and whatnot, because they're naval positions. You have to be near the ocean. Yeah. There were tons of parties every other week, social events, fancy dinners, games, a lot of fun events that foster a sense of community. Mm -hmm. And on the fancier Formal dinners, officers were all dressed up in their uniforms and the wives are decked up to the max wow. in their finest saris and prettiest jewelry. What's the like flip side of this? Because it just sounds like <laughs> you become a naval officer and you just live a fancy life. 
No, I mean, you, you're spending like eight months on a boat, right? Yes. Yeah. At least in the earlier parts of your career, you will be sailing a lot. Okay. You will be sailing a lot and spending time away from your family. Okay. Maybe that's the con. Maybe that's the trade-off. I mean, there should be something. It can't just be like all for fun. That's why they have all of these other events and, you know, social gatherings. Because you need to keep morale up, yeah. right? Like if you're away for eight months, whatever few short months you are at home, you want to make them fun and happy and memorable and keep you going for the yeah. next whatever six months that you're out at sea. So it makes sense. Now, growing up, all of these events took place in naval clubs on the base. There wasn't much opportunity to see or meet with civilians there. But from what I'm seeing in this case, uh, back then, at least in 1959, Bombay things were a little different. Okay. And the Nanavatis would attend parties with prominent members of society at events off base, right? Social clubs off base. Mm -hmm. At some such social gathering, Sylvia Nanavati, the 27-year-old wife of Kavas Nanavati, was introduced to a young woman by the name of Mamie Ahuja in 1957, I believe. Now, Mamie Ahuja was not from the naval fraternity. She was a prominent socialite in the Bombay high society. And she oh, was from the okay. Sindhi community. Mm. Okay, Sindhi community. Now, Sindhis in India are generally people who trace their familial roots back to the region of Sindh, which is now in Pakistan. Yeah. They have a distinct language, cuisine, and culture all of their own. They are typically entrepreneurs and are stereotypically affluent. Obviously, not everyone is, but a lot are. Yeah. Sidebar. Uh-huh. Sindh region. The Sindh region yeah. is well in the area considered the Indus Valley civilization. Okay. Okay. One of the great ancient people of the world. Cool. I feel like our current Desi society sucks so much that it's just... <laughs> I'd just rather focus on when we were great once. I don't want to say make India great again, but yeah, we had such great ancestors. I bet they were up to some, you know, weird stuff. Some bullshit. They believed in some, you know, wrong things. <laughs> yeah, we don't know what exactly the people were like, but they seemed cool. Didn't know about soap. Oh, they knew. They invented soap. Oh. <laughs> mm-hmm. Cool. Did you know the word shampoo comes from a desi word, champu? Champu. Yeah. Yeah? Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we invented shampoo, so. You're welcome, world. Pepper and shampoo. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Mamie Ahuja and Sylvia hit it off, and they soon became good acquaintances and friends eventually. At some point, Mamie Ahuja introduced Sylvia to her charming bachelor brother, Prem Bhagwandas Ahuja. Now, Prem was highly successful in the automotive industry. I think he was a car dealer. He used to import all the fancy... Fords and Mustangs and whatnot from US uh, and UK and sold them Ooh, in Bombay. Okay. He was dashing and flamboyant, as you'd expect anyone with money and flair to be, honestly, you know. And sales experience. He drove convertible cars, he smoked imported cigars, and he always dressed in the finest clothes. He wined and dined in luxury and led a very privileged life of an affluent man. His home on Napian Sea Road in Bombay is a prime spot right by the ocean. Mm -hmm. Okay, in Malabar Hill. He had a mansion called Jeevan Jyot, which means the flame of life. 
Understandably, his charms were irresistible to a lot of women, and he enjoyed the company of Bombay's debutantes and socialites with ease. I'm sure it was like moths to a flame in, in this case, you know, young eligible bachelor who, I mean, not just for flings or whatever, but just as a personality. Yeah. People liked him. So this meeting of Sylvia and Prem was ultimately catastrophic for both, but in very different ways. As part of his naval duties, Kavas would sail the seas for months at a time which left Sylvia alone with three kids to handle all by herself. Don't be mistaken, though. This is not like three kids in U.S. that a wife has to take care of. No, no. Yeah. There's a lot of help in mm-hmm. India, especially in the defense. You have cooks, you have maids, you even have drivers for high-ranking mm-hmm. officers, so they'll drive you anywhere that you need. But a heart can still get lonely despite all the support. Sylvia was already a stranger in the country. Yeah. I was just going to say, I wanted to clarify, they met in the UK and he moved her to India. Yes. Within a year. Did she learn Hindi? Not that she would need to. Everyone speaks English. But did she like, you know, integrate at all into... I would assume not. I don't think she would have learned too much. She definitely would have learned all the common terms and stuff. And I don't think they spoke Hindi at home because they're Parsi. Parsi speak Gujarati. Parsi. But did she get welcomed into that community? Yes. By all means, yes. His yeah. family accepted him. They they were fine with it. Yeah. You can still get lonely. So she was already a stranger in the country. Sure. She had lived there for seven years at this point. But it's still a huge culture shock for a Portsmouth girl to now be living in 1950s India. It's still India. Now, there are unwritten rules about the demeanor and lifestyle of officers' wives, which she now had to live by. And I don't know, maybe maybe that wasn't what she had viewed for herself in the future when she was younger. So yeah. she got lonely. And in all of those years, being without Kavas, and then seeing him get all the attention at mm-hmm. social events must have affected her. She must have felt another chasm between herself and her husband because... Remember, he is a high-flying naval officer, handsome. Right. Everyone loves him. Again, like moths to a flame, people were attracted to him. He was the center of attention. She might have felt a little sidelined in Mm. the phenomenal rise of Kavas' career in the Navy. He was being groomed for greatness. Kavas was known to be a good husband. He was a good father and a good son, by all accounts. There is no report or even rumors of any kind of abuse at all. He was, you know, all-round good guy. He was truly an officer and a gentleman of the finest caliber. But in this case, it is a good reminder that even in the most perfect-looking fairy tale relationship, there may be a crack or a weakness that we can't see. So, you know, when you see all these happy families on Instagram and TikTok and whatnot, just remember, you never know what's brewing in the back. So don't be jealous. Don't envy them. <laughs> they, might, they might have shitty problems of their own that, you know, we can't see. Now, it's possible that this left a void inside of Sylvia. And she wanted a little companionship, a little attention, some affection. Yeah. These are just my thoughts and speculations. We don't know what it was that drew these two people to each other at that time. But Sylvia and Prem fell in love really hard. They had an extramarital affair for almost a whole year while Kavas sailed at sea on and off in 
1958-59. From the love letters that they sent to each other and from witness testimonies like that of Mamie Ahuja, it is certain that the unlikely couple of Sylvia and Prem were deeply in love and they had talked about marriage, children, and a happy life, a future together. Hmm. It wasn't just a hookup situation. Yeah, yeah. There was... Emotions were involved. Emotion. Well, as is with all affairs, there has to be some logical end to the situation. It can't go on forever. And in this case, it happened on April 27th, 1959. Okay. Kawas had just returned home earlier from a months-long sailing mission after having been away for nearly six months before that. So he'd been away for most of... 5859. He had just come back home. It had been a few days. Mm-hmm. It was a Monday afternoon. I think he was off duty that day. And the Nanavatis were having lunch as a family together. They had prawn curry and mm. rice. Yeah. I Yummy. don't know why this detail is mentioned everywhere, but it was. And um, I'm here for it. Yeah. I need some of that in my life. <sighs> I'm hungry now, but <laughs> Me too. let's move on. Kavas hugged his wife but he felt her tense up and flinch at his touch. Afterwards, he asked Sylvia what was wrong. She stayed silent. Kavas questioned her again and asked her if she was unhappy over something. Mm -hmm. And then he asked her if there was someone else (gasps) in her life. Okay. Jumped right to that. I guess he knew it was coming. Mm. To this, Sylvia nodded in agreement. Kavas was upset. But somehow he guessed and he asked if it was Prem Ahuja, to which she nodded in the affirmative. He was understandably flustered and he said that he would go confront Prem right away. Sylvia asked him not to and it seemed that Kavas had agreed at that point to just let it go for a while. He said they would talk about it tomorrow. They had plans for the day and they wanted to go ahead with them as planned. So pretending as if nothing had happened, Kavas took Sylvia and their kids to see the movie Tom Thumb in the theater. He dropped them off and he promised to come pick them up at 6 p.m. And then with a cool, calm and collected demeanor, Kavas Nanavati drove to his docked ship, the INS Mysore. So his ship, the INS Mysore, was docked in Bombay at the naval dockyard. Okay. So he went on his ship and he signed out and took charge of a .38 caliber Smith & Wesson revolver with six cartridges. Now, he stated the reason for needing the revolver as a safety measure while traveling to Ahmednagar later that day. That's the official reason he gave. That's weird. I don't know if that's allowed today. (laughs) Commanders or captains can just check out guns because they're traveling somewhere. Seems like not really a reason. (laughs) Maybe it was like more dangerous too, a bit. So when you're on the road, you have more chance. Reason to need it. Yeah. Yes, possible. Kavas then drove straight to the office of Prem Ahuja and he inquired after him with the manager. Prem was not in the office. So Kavas then drove straight to Prem's home, Jeevanjot, the posh building in Malabar Hill, where Ahuja siblings resided. Kavas rang the bell. Asked for Prem, and when he was told, Kisaha bedroom mehe, which means Sir is in his bedroom, he headed straight up the stairs to confront Prem. He saw Prem freshly showered, combing his hair in front of a mirror, 
dressed only in a towel wrapped around his waist. Now that is when three shots rang out in Jivanjot, which ironically translates to flame of life. That afternoon, Premahuja's flame of life was extinguished by the actions of an enraged husband. Hmm. Now, the entire duration of Kawas's entry and exit from Jivanjot lasted a mere two to three to four minutes. That's it. Super fast. Came in, went up, blah, 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 bang, 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 and he left. Now, after shooting Prem, Kawas reported his offense to the naval marshal provost. I suppose that's the officer in charge of military law and order. Yeah. As per the Constitution of India, all matters involving defense officers will be tried in naval courts, like they'll be court-martialed. Mm-hmm. Cops don't have jurisdiction over defense officers, except in the case of rape or murder. Okay. If they commit rape or murder, then it's fair game. Yeah. They have to be tried in the courts of the land. Okay. And so Marshal Samuel made a call to the Bombay CID branch of the police mm-hmm. and reported the crime to Inspector Lobo. Kawas drove himself to the police station and he surrendered to Officer Lobo. He admitted to killing Premahuja and he was questioned with much respect and courtesy, which mm-hmm. is typically not shown to other criminals or suspects by the police. This whole story just is straight out of like some new wave, like, you know, everything's just so sophisticated and like, it's very black and white film. Shiny hair, soft light, jewels. Everything just works out. Everything is smooth sailing. Even when you kill someone. Smooth sailing. Smooth sailing. Okay, so he went, had a very civilized discussion, confessing his crimes and answering questions in the most dignified manner. In fact, I read that when Kavas said, I've killed a man... And I'm here to surrender. Inspector Lobo asked him for tea. Like, he's like, would you like some tea? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this movie exists, right? This movie exists. (laughs) Yes, it does. They didn't even have to write it. They just literally took it out of the newspaper. No, can you imagine any other criminal who who wasn't Officer Kawas? I killed a man and police was like, would you like a stick up your (laughs) That's what they would do to them. Soon after. After Kawas landed at the police station, naval officers of the highest ranks showed up there and requested or rather demanded that Commander Nanavati be handed over in their custody and that he would be kept in a secure naval detention center. And although it was not required by law to do this, feeling some kind of pressure from a huge naval presence Mm-hmm. The custody of Kawas Ranavati was relinquished over to the Navy. He never spent a single night in civil jail cells. Well, good job. It's not going to be pretty, so go home and have yourself a scotch and we'll come and arrest you in the morning. <laughs> now, Officer Lobo had then inspected the crime scene at Jivanjot. The bathroom window had shattered from ricocheting bullets. Okay. Blood stains on the floor and the door handle of the bathroom. Yeah. There were towels lying there with blood stains in the bathroom. And laying sprawled on the floor on his stomach was Prem Ahuja. He had three bullet wounds on his body. Okay. One to the upper chest 
right above the clavicle, mm-hmm. one on his fingers and earlobes, as if he had put his hand up in defense. Yeah. And was shot through his fingers and his earlobe. And finally, the fatal wound to the back of his head. Oh. Which caused a massive hemorrhage, which was the cause of death. Okay, so that was execution style. Yeah, so apparently the fatal bullet was shot when Prem was turned with his back to Kavas. Yeah. Perhaps trying to get away? Yeah, or maybe even just sort of being thrown around from the, the force of the bullets, right? Yeah, yeah. So the matter was taken to court, and as was customary then, a jury of nine Indians were selected to decide the fate of Commander Nanavati. There was a presiding judge also, of course, but the jury would seal the fate on this case. There was a jury system in India back then, which was, you know, instated by the Brits. That's how things worked in Britain. So they established the same system in India, which was perfect because that's an easy way to, um, I don't know, like force the results of case as you would like it because it's so easy to bribe the shit out of people. Yeah. You know, especially in a country where things were not, Easy. Life was not easy. Making a living was not easy. You have a jury of nine people who can bribe all nine of them and do whatever you want (sighs) for the outcome. Right. At once, there was a spark on the streets of Bombay, especially in the Parsi and Sindhi communities, both affluent and with nearly equal influence at all levels of society, right? Mm -hmm. The killer or murderer is Parsi and the victim is Sindhi. Sindhi. So now it's not just... uh, A story of two individuals. It is now backed by two very affluent and influential communities. Right. And that's how things work in India even today. Mm -hmm. The communities back their people. It doesn't matter what kind of crime Mm -hmm. they've committed Mm -hmm. or maybe, uh, you know, suspected of committing, your community backs you. Yeah. Instead of a simple criminal case, it took the form of a communal issue and one group was pitted against the other. Now, watching from the sidelines was the rest of Bombay's public. You know, the other non-Parsi, non-Sindhi people, right? Mm-hmm. To them, it's uh, tamasha. It's entertainment, really. They're amused. It's uh, tabloid. Tabloid junk. Yeah. Prominent members of high society have clashed and ended in murder. It's mm-hmm. not common. It's not every day this happens. Usually, crimes are associated with the poor, the oppressed, less privileged sections of society who rob or kill to survive yeah but here it was not out of necessity or any kind of you know monetary desperation it was out of anger vengeance and even a matter of honor so it's almost comical to them you have money you have power what the fuck why are you like killing people you don't need to do any of this shit. <laughs> people couldn't understand it's like us watching the kardashians or whatever today kanye kill who's Kim dating now? Whatever. That weird looking dude. Peter. Oh, that hot fellow. Well, I mean, people think he's hot. Is he though? I mean, not to me. He just looks dirty. Aw, he's sick. He's really sick. What's his name? Pete. He's sick. Oops. (laughs) Pete. Adam. Pete. What? Pete. We're old. We're old. So yeah, whatever. It's like watching the Kardashians or some other trash. Yeah show about the rich and the famous because we can't relate to it and it's amusement for us it's like yeah. wow look at these weirdos they have everything we possibly could think of in this world and they still have these kind of shitty problems which which means life for us isn't that bad after all right 
So the upper echelons of Parsi community got together and they supported the Nanavati family. They appointed one of the top lawyers in the country to defend him. His name was Karl Kandalawala. Kandalawala. He was an ex-Air Force pilot who had turned into a lawyer. Okay. And at that time in his career, he had never lost a case. They got the best of the best. The prosecution was led by a state-appointed lawyer, as usually is, right? Mm-hmm. was Mr. Trivedi. However, the Sindhi community wanted to assure the best legal representation to get justice for their beloved Prem. And so they retained the services of perhaps the most famous criminal lawyer in India in this century. Okay? Who that? Yeah, Mr. Ram Jait Malani. Ram Jait Malani. Back then, he was still kind of uh, establishing his name. He was young, but he was up and coming. And his name was making the rounds as, you know, the next big lawyer. He was acting as a consultant to the public prosecutors. Okay. Right? He's a private lawyer. Mm. If we go by what was written about all these court cases, it was Mr. Jate Malani who was pulling the strings and making all the decisions behind the scenes, kind of like a puppet master. Yeah. And the prosecutor was following his lead. Okay. Apart from all this star-studded legal counsel, however, there was a third protagonist in this case, and that was the secret weapon. The local tabloid called the Blitz, which was owned by a fearless and shrewd newsman, a Parsi gentleman called Rusi Karanjia. Uh-oh, he's going to be biased. Uh-huh, <laughs> yeah, clearly. In a strategic move way ahead of its time and ahead of his peers in the news industry, Rusi Karanjia realized that the power of the tabloid press was insurmountable. Untapped, yeah. He was determined to shape the public's narrative with a version of the truth, and even a little untruth, that would project Kavas as a man who had no choice but to vanquish the philandering playboy Premahuja, who had entrapped impressionable, gullible Sylvia into adultery, while the naval hero served the nation. Hmm. Sounds different when you say it that way, right? He who controls the narrative controls the people. The truth was that Prem and Sylvia were very much in love. Adulterers? Yes. Wrong? Yes. But they were trying to figure out how to be together, right? It Mm -hmm. wasn't a devious game that they were playing to spite Kavas. Yeah. It happened. It's yeah. emotions. We're humans. It happened. And it sounds like she came clean pretty quickly, right? They were having an affair for a year, but she told him she didn't have to. Because he would be sailing for years to come. Right? Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. Yeah, I don't know. They could have gone uh, gone around doing this for years and years ahead, right? But she didn't. Because that's not what they wanted for themselves. Right. They probably had regret and they wanted to fix it. They wanted to make it right. Yeah. Okay, so it looks like this episode went on for a little too long, so I'm cutting it short right here, but then we're going to catch right up with what happens in the court case, what was the verdict, and what happened after the verdict. Where did the Nanavatis land up? If you want to find out more, definitely catch up with us for part two of the Nanavati Blitz on Crimes from the East, your Desi true crime podcast with a little masala and spice. Namaste!